You're listening to the podcast of Dr. Chip Bennett. Please consider following us and giving us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Dr. John Walton, I just want to say it really is an honor and privilege to have you here to talk about Genesis in the Old Testament. Sure, Chip. It's always great to have these conversations. First of all, there there's probably people that know of your work and maybe read your work and are aware of it who maybe don't know you as a person. Sort of hear your story a little bit. You know, you you didn't come to your understanding of where you're at today right away. Much like myself, I've had many different theological things that I've changed my mind on. Um, you you started off teaching at Moody, correct? Could, could you could you walk through a little bit of that as much as you feel comfortable with just sort of your process on how you got from where you were to where you are today? Because um, I, I think that's fascinating. Because you because a lot of people who maybe would say they don't like where you are today don't realize where you came from. You know, um, could you walk through that a little bit? Or sure. You know? uh, so I grew up in a context where Christian family uh, spent a lot of time at church and. Uh, and learned the Bible well. Um, basically, the position held at our church was a young earth position, okay. but not militaristic, not sure. aggressive, just that's kind of what it was. And, mm-hmm. and those, those times, there weren't a whole lot of other choices. And so I grew up with that. And when I began my academic study, um, I started learning Hebrew and started learning about the ancient world, starting learning those languages and that sure. history. And so I started to build sort of a repertoire of understanding mm. of the ancient world and of the Old Testament and began thinking about how they mesh, mm. how the study of uh, the ancient world could help with our study sure. of the Bible. So I started learning about all of that. When I completed my my doctoral work, I I got a job at Moody Bible Institute okay. and uh, taught there for 20 years. Okay. Uh, during that time, um, most of that time, I continued to hold a young earth view, mm. though I didn't talk about it much even gotcha. when I talked about Genesis because I felt like there was something I was missing. Mm. I felt like there was some kind of key to reading the Bible that, mm. that I wasn't getting. And all during that time, I was learning more about the ancient Near East, uh, studying more of the Hebrew text and all of those things. But it wasn't until almost at the end of my time at teaching at Moody that um, suddenly I had that aha moment. Mm. I was in class teaching Genesis and uh, had all the preparation of all those years, but finally just asked the question to the class, uh, what kind of creation account is this? And Mm. just asking the question that way suddenly helped me kind of see all the pieces come together. And so at that moment, I started to say, that's what I've been missing. I feel mm-hmm. like I've been reading the Genesis passage uh, through my own modern expectations mm-hmm. and modern filters and modern questions and not asking the question I really needed to ask. What kind of creation account was this for mm-hmm. them? And that really just opened up a whole door for thinking uh, bringing all together all the ancient Near Eastern material that I'd studied, all the mm-hmm. biblical texts that I'd studied, and developing this this different view of Genesis. How would you, what would you say to someone who maybe has that, I, I don't want to use the word accusatory, although I'm sure you do get some of that, but that sort of that sort of almost snarky, you're, you're just reading stuff into the text that's foreign to the text. What would you say to someone like that? Well, first of all, I would say we are foreign to the text. 
context. We're outsiders because mm -hmm. we're in our modern culture, speaking mm -hmm. our modern language uh, with our modern issues. So we are foreign to the text. I want to know what was an insider view mm. in the text. I'm an outsider view. Mm -hmm. And for the insider view, we have to go to that time and that culture. Okay. Um, to me, I'm not reading the ancient Near Eastern texts into the Bible. What I'm doing is trying to understand the world in which the Israelites were situated mm. uh, so that I can understand what questions they would have and what answers they would seek. I'm trying to identify who their conversation partners were. And certainly their conversation partners are not going to be the same ones that we have today. Correct. And so uh, that's what I'm trying to do, to understand them in their world and see how that's going to help me understand them better. And don't you feel like that in, in, in many ways, like say if you take like a, a normal hermeneutics class and any undergraduate or graduate level um, scenario, they're, they're going to teach you how to look back at background and culture, and they're going to ask you to look at um, language and, you know, uh, who the recipients were, mm -hmm. what was going on in Ephesus or what was going sure. on in Col I mean, so it's really, I mean, what you're doing is no different. Um, why do you think it gets pinned that way, though? Mm -hmm. You know, because I, I do think that there's this sense that, you know, well, you're reading into, but, but it's like what you're doing, in, in my opinion, is you're doing what any good teaching on how to read the Bible actually is done. That, hey, we weren't there in Colossae. We weren't there at Ephesus. We weren't on the Isle of Patmos. We, we, weren't, we weren't there. And so the best thing we can do is to try to go back. And it's, and it's difficult. It's difficult to go back and sort of re-understand what's going on. Because as you said, we're so foreign in, in many ways to what was going on. Um, I mean, I, I think what you're doing with Genesis is what I would be doing in the New Testament as well. I don't understand why there's so much kickback, though, on the Genesis enterprise. Do you have any thoughts about that? I, I do. And I think part of it goes back to the history of how this comparative literature has been used by some. Hmm. Uh, some have used Babylonian texts like the Gilgamesh epic or the Babylonian creation epic um, and have used them to undermine the Bible. Gotcha. Um, to say, oh, now we find out that the Bible is simply derived from ancient mythology, and so we should read it as mythology, and it, mm. uh, it, that, that's used to dismiss it. When that kind of argument's out there, you can understand that some mm -hmm. people who take the Bible seriously would say, whoa, whoa, whoa I don't want to do that. Sure. Uh, but see, here's the difference. That whole argument um, suggests that the Bible is indebted to other pieces of literature for its content. Um, and that's not the case I'm making. Uh, rather than say that it's indebted to literature, I would rather say it's embedded in culture. Mm. Um, so embedded and mm. not indebted. Gotcha. That's great. Uh, and in that way, we can say they're not in a vacuum. They're living in their world. And <laughs> of course, they're, they're talking about things within their cultural frame. Gotcha. When you had that moment, um, your aha moment, where you ask the question, what kind of creation is this? Um, walk through the, the options that we have for the creation narrative. I mean, because I think there's two, I want to steal your thunder, but you like the, the, the house and the home. Yeah. Um, could, you, could you explain to maybe someone who's not as familiar with what you've done, 
um, but maybe even to someone who's familiar mm -hmm. with what you've done, but maybe has got a um, just a, a small sampling. Um, when we talk about there being an answer for what type of creation is this, I think most people naturally default to, oh, well, this is a materialistic creation. This is when God just sort of, there was nothing, and then all of a sudden there was something, and this is how the nothing became something, um, which is a one particular way to do that. Could you explain the two, you know, and especially to someone who is looking at Genesis, struggling through the text, trying to figure out how all of this works, um, explain how when you had that moment of what type of creation account is this? Well, we tend to read the Bible through our own intuitive culture. And so we have to look at our culture mm. uh, to understand kind of what we're doing. And whether we're talking about the culture as uh, post-enlightenment or uh, modernity or post-modernity, whatever mm -hmm. labels you want to, you know, how you want to cut that sure, pie, sure. Um, we tend to look at it in those filters. And what what can be dangerous is when we don't realize that it's a filter, mm. when we don't realize okay. that there are other ways to think. So in post-enlightenment times, when people talk about creation, they are automatically, intuitively mm. thinking the material cosmos, because okay. the Enlightenment taught us to think materialistically, sure, sure. and the whole development of science as we know it is the pursuit of that kind of materialistic understanding. So it's no surprise that people in our day tend to think if you're talking about creation, you're talking about the material cosmos. Mm. And it's not like they've chosen that option over others. Okay. It's that they think there is no other option. Of course it's that. So when I was able to finally frame the right question, I think was the right question, what kind of, what kind of creation sure. account is this? Um, it was because I started to see the things in the Genesis account which were not material. And day one's a pretty obvious one. You know, light is not material. Time is not material. Day and night is not mm. material. And so it was observing that just about day one, not even worry about the okay. other days, uh, but to say, there's something going on here that's not material. Mm -hmm. And that's what led to the question, what gotcha. kind of creation account is this? Is it possible that there's another way to think about creation than in material terms? Mm. And again, for many people, they just never get there. And But I, at that time, I had read enough of the ancient world to say, you know, they generally weren't as interested mm. in material kind of issues and material origins. In fact, even when we call it an origins account, when we think of origins, we think in terms of materiality. That's right. Um, and so I've been more inclined to say, you know, what about if we thought about Genesis 1 as an account of cosmic identity? Hmm. What is the cosmos instead of origins? Even by using the word origins, we kind of impose a little something on it. So uh, at that point, when I asked what kind of, what kind of creation account is this, I started to consider the idea that in the ancient world, they're more, cons more concerned about how things function, what role and purpose they have, okay. and about the gods or God bringing order to the world, which is an importantly creative element. And so it becomes not a theological question, what does it mean that God created? It becomes a literary question. 
exactly what part of the story are they telling here? Mm. And so I use the illustration of house and home. Okay. Building a house is a creative process. Um, making a home is also a creative process. Correct. Um, and you could talk about either. Uh, when my students come to the house and we're talking about our place there and they'll ask us about our place, they don't want a house story. They don't care about the plumbing. They don't care about That's the right. foundation That's of the right. roof. Um, right. They want to know kind of how we made this our home. Sure. And uh, so, again, it, it's a question of which, which question are you asking? So I eventually came to the conclusion that Genesis 1 is not so much a house story, which is the story our science would tell, but it's mm. a home story, okay. which is the story that would have mattered to them in the ancient world. What do you say to someone, and I am by no means a Hebrew scholar, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I believe the first lines of the text are barashit bara Elohim. Um, when, when you take that second word bara, um, which means to create, um, can you find textual places in the Old Testament where that word would be less of a material origins and more of a ordering or a functional creation? And I know you've done some word mm -hmm. studies there. Um, do you have some examples of where someone who might go, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to resist this idea that the creation is, is a, has to be material. Um, I, I believe there's some linguistic evidence that that word can, can mean an ordering and a functioning. Is that, am I correct on that? Yes. And I did the study in, in the book. Um, and certainly there are places where you say, well, it could be material sure, there. Sure. And that's, that's fine, but it also could be ordering there. Um, are, are there any that have to be material and couldn't possibly be ordering? No, there really aren't. Are there, are there some that have to be ordering and are not material? Yes, there are. Okay. Um, so in that sense, the ordering concept covers all of them. Gotcha. The material concept does not cover all of them. Okay. Now, again, that doesn't prove that it's only ordering and not material, but it shows that sometimes you need to go to a, a different level for that. And so, you know, that's why I did that word study in the, in the book to bring out that information. And again, people who don't like my view will say, oh, but lots of those are material. So why are you ruling that out? Well, I'm just trying to say, do we really know what the word bara means? Mm -hmm. When we say create, I mean, even the English word create, you can create a masterpiece, you can create sure. a committee, you can sure. create a curriculum. Mm -hmm. Those are not material issues. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have to have context. And you can't just say that, well, cosmic origins is your context and therefore it must be material. Sure. Again, excuse me, your, your culture is showing. Okay. Okay. So those are the kinds of things that come into it. You know, this might help. Uh, an illustration that I use is say you're going to a play and you get all hung up in traffic and construction and parking mm -hmm. problems and you end up walking in and you've missed the first part and it's just intermission. The lights are coming up. And you turn to the people around you and you say, how did the play begin? And one person says, well, the script was written in the 1930s. And you say, oh, no, that, that's not what I want to know. He says, well, you can't have a play without a script. Well, I, I get that, but that's, that's not what I want. Another person chimes in. This set was constructed, you know, just recently for this play. To, and I say, no, no, that's, that's not what I'm interested in. Um, they said, but you, you can't have the play without the set. The set is, I, I get it, but... And another person chimes in, this cast was chosen, you know, mm. from the, the acting company. No, no, I, I'm not interested in it. Well, how could you have a play without a cast? 
And finally, in your frustration, you say, what's happened since the curtain opened? Now, what I like about that illustration is that all four of those are right answers. They're mm -hmm. good answers. Uh, it's true that the play's origins uh, could be described in any of those yes. ways. Uh, but that's not the question you were asking. Correct. And so that means that when we start to ask what kind of creation account is this, how did the world begin? How did the play begin? How did the world begin? Um, we have to say, well, at what level do they want an answer to that? Yeah. Um, is, it, is it set? Is it script? Is it cast? Is it action? What is it? Mm -hmm. And so this, this is a way of thinking about our literary responsibilities as readers. Okay. So someone who says, when I go to Genesis 1, it just naturally feels like that I should read this as a material origins. And, and I, I, I somewhat understand that. And, and, but the, the point being, and, and it, I think this is what you're saying, the point being that th that's because I'm sort of presupposing that that's what the text has to say. What I'm not asking is what did Genesis intend to do when Genesis was written to its original audience? And I mean, don't you think that we owe it to scripture and we owe it as scholars to, to be asking those tough questions? I mean, I don't think that's, I don't think that's like, to, you know, people always say you take the Bible literally. I'm like, well, I take the Bible seriously because nobody believes that when David says that the Lord covers him with his wings, that he's a cosmic chicken, mm -hmm. you know, um, so, so we do, but what we want to do is we want to take it seriously. Don't you think taking Genesis seriously requires us to be able to say, even though I grew up in church, Every preacher I've ever heard said this, and all the YouTube videos that I watch say mm -hmm. this one thing. Don't we sort of owe it to ourselves to at least be open enough to go, hey, maybe I could be misreading this text, especially when we know that church history is replete with many people that have read Scripture one way till they didn't read it that way anymore because mm -hmm. somebody else came along and said, no, this is a better way. Um, don't you think we owe that to ourselves? Well, we not only owe it to ourselves, we owe it to Scripture and we owe it to God. Mm. That is, when we talk about the Bible having authority, that means we're accountable. Yeah. And we're accountable not to how we feel about it. We're mm. not accountable to sort of, it naturally feels to me. I'm sorry, yeah. our, our accountability is to the author. Yes. Because God used those authors to bring about inspired Scripture. And if we're going to be accountable to God, we have to be accountable to his instruments and to the text that they developed under his guidance. And therefore, it doesn't, it doesn't carry any weight for it to say, well, it just feels to me like it's natural reading for me. You're an outsider. Mm. You know, own it, yeah. buy it, um, recognize it, mm. that you are reading as an outsider. You say, oh, but but it's God's love letter to me. No, it's not. It's God communicating to Israelites, though it is for all of us. Yeah. Uh, but to get to the what's for me, we have to start with what was to them. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of accountability to authority means that we can't afford to be sort of lack, lackluster about it all. Sure. This is what... Yeah. This is how I naturally respond. Yeah. That's your culture. When we when we go to the Genesis account, um, expound a little bit more on the difference of someone who maybe has grown up reading it as a material account or as the building of a house, mm -hmm. where it is that material um, origins. 
Um, explain the difference, how to read it as a, an orderly account or a functional account. What are some ways that would help them sure. maybe see the text that way? Well, I think lots of it just has to do with paying attention to what's there okay. instead of reading in things that okay. aren't. Okay. So you get to day one and he names them day and night. That's what he created because you create as you name and you create as you separate and distinguish. And light does that. That's why light is mentioned. And basically you're talking about the alternation of day and night, which is time, which is not material. Mm -hmm. So I look at verse one and I say, well, if they were going to talk about a material world, that's not this. This is how okay. time is ordered, which is, has a lot to do with how our lives and sure. history and existence are ordered. Move to day two. It says, let the dry land emerge. It doesn't say he made it. Now, of course, he, he did make it, but it's interesting that they don't say that. Yeah. They just say, let the dry land emerge. And therefore, even though it's a material thing, dry land, it doesn't say that he made it. Um, and then it talks about plants dropping seed and growing. And this is how we get food. I'm on day three now, of course. Sure. This is how we get food. Um, this is how the earth is ordered that these plants grow. And then the same plant grows from the same seed. And this is how it works. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at day two and the the living space separating between the sure. waters above and waters below and we live in this space so god's giving us time and space and food and this is how our our world is ordered and again all through it all i'm saying is he manufacturing something material here no 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 okay so where's the terraforming where's the mountains and rivers and lakes where's the forests and the mm -hmm. they're not they're not there sure and so the things you would look for in a material account aren't there. The things that are there are not God actually manufacturing material things. We should start thinking what kind of creation account is. What if someone who's listening right now says, well, yeah, I agree with you. But back at the beginning, it says he created the heavens and the earth. That's when he created the, the mountains and the rivers and all of this. And now what you're you're riffing on some of this stuff, but you're failing to see that the material account was here. Mm -hmm. what's your what's your response to that well my response is we have to figure out what genesis 1 1 is um some people certainly have said this is the initial creation of of matter yes of material earth um the difficulty is that by the time you get to the end of the seven days it tells us that god created in the seven days um and the seven days start in verse three uh, verse two it's all chaos um unformed mm -hmm. unfilled sure the alternative for verse one is that this is a literary introduction to the passage and many commentators take it that way i'm not alone in this one certainly i didn't even say it first you know, uh, a literary introduction and of course genesis uses literary introductions all the way through the, the this is the generation of sure you know, that it does over and over again and so in the beginning god created heavens and earth let me tell you how he did it mm -hmm. You know, it's a literary introduction. Nothing happens in verse one. What happens, creation, is in the seven days. And the chapter tells you that at the end. It was in seven days that he created. So the chapter leads you to that. It's a very... Gotcha. Yeah. So in that sense, it's not that people haven't said that, but... Yeah. And, and I always, I, I tend to think of it as, in the beginning, you have to ask the question, is this 
in the beginning of the beginning of the beginning of the beginning of the beginning, mm-hmm. or is this in the beginning when God did this, this mm-hmm. is the beginning of that? N- not maybe even answering the question of in the beginning, the beginning, the beginning, all the way back to wherever everything mm-hmm. started, which I think we both would agree at some point there was a creation, what we would call ex nihilo. Um, but the question being, is Genesis talking about right. those issues? Is that is that a fair? Correct. Um, um, you know, again, I've got no problem with the fact that God did create the material world, and at some point, therefore, He did that out of nothing. Yes. Um, but is that the story the text is it, telling? That's the question. Is yeah. Genesis telling and, us that account? And I don't think that it is. Correct. Okay. Um, so uh, that's that's how I would answer that. Yeah. Now, some people would say, well, by day four, God made the sun, moon, and stars. And that seems like an obvious manufacturer of material objects. Question, did Israelites know they were material objects? Um, And the answer is no. Nobody in the ancient world knew the sun, moon, and stars were material objects. Hmm. Um, The Babylonians called them gods. Okay. The Israelites, of course, did not. But they called them lights. Why do they call them lights? Because that's how they perceive sure. them. Yeah. And so we may say, well, we know that sun, moon, and stars are material objects. But wait a minute. This is an account communicated to Israelites by Israelites. And therefore, if they're going to be giving a material account, they should be talking about things that are known to be material objects, which sun, moon, and stars are not. Okay. So God made lights. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the verb for make there is not bara or create, like we've talked about before, but it's a word that simply indicates agency. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter whether it's a material thing or, I mean, that, that verb is translated 50 different ways in translations, mm-hmm. prepared, provided, all kinds of things. Gotcha. And it basically indicates agency. Okay. So God is the agent that provided, again, whatever English word you want to use, the lights. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is there a little polemic there too, potentially against Egypt? Um, you know, Ra was their main god, the sun god. It's, it's sort of interesting. Oh, day four is, is the sun. Is there any polemic there, you think? Or? Some people think there, there might be, and there might be. Okay. Um, I tend to downplay okay. that okay. because um, I'm... Uh, I'm a little more convinced that if they're going to do polemic, they're going to do it more explicitly. Gotcha. Okay. And, you know, I mean, you could say, well, every time we talk about Jesus, we're arguing against Muslims. Well, but I'm not doing it to argue against Muslims. Sure, I understand. You know? No. So totally the understand. intention, gotcha. I'm not sure the intention is polemic. Fair, fair enough. Fair Could enough. be, but I. Okay. You know. um, so l- let's talk about, you know, we're, we're talking about Genesis 1 can be read as a material creation, which many Christians do. Um, The alternative way to potentially read this is through a orderly or a functional creation where it's not necessarily the creation of something that wasn't there and now is. It's, I, I, the analogy I use is a Monopoly game. I have a Monopoly game in our closet. Mm -hmm. It's there, Mm -hmm. okay, but it's not ready to be played. Okay, mm-hmm. but it's like all the pieces are there mm-hmm. to, to, to be played. But to play it, I got to get it out, open up the box, put the thing. I have to create 
the game mm-hmm. in a way or order the game right. so that we can sit down as a family, money's out, p- mm-hmm. pieces chosen or whatever. So I can talk about Monopoly as when, I don't know, is it Hasbro or whoever it is that manufactured the game? There's probably some place where there's a plant where those boards are made and those little pieces are made out of metal and mm-hmm. all this stuff. And, and that is the origin of that Monopoly game. And okay? you don't care. That's right, and I don't really care about it. No, no, why, why would I care yeah, about that? Exactly. I mean, I mean, somebody might ask me and I might, well, okay, I, I guess it was made there or wherever else. But all I care about is, is I want the game to function properly when mm-hmm. I play it because we want to have fun as a family. Um, the, the question is, is, and I think this is what we're saying, are we talking about the Monopoly game back at the factory that's being produced, are we talking about the Monopoly game that's being put together so that it orders and functions? Mm -hmm. If that is the right way to read Genesis, then how powerful does day seven become Mm -hmm. in the creation account? Because traditionally in Protestant, we don't don't really know. I mean, there's some subsets, you know, Seventh-day Adventists and the people that go, hold on, this is important. But for many Protestants, we just don't even know what to do right. with this idea of God resting. Did he take a nap? Was he in a hammock? Um, but don't w- would you agree that day seven, reading this as a the Monopoly game being created so that it mm-hmm. functions, day seven becomes like one of, if not the most important part of that creation story. Is that true? And expound on that. Yes, I, I think it is true. And and really to to build off your Monopoly example and use another one that's going to lead us there. Uh, think about when you start working at a new place and they have employee orientation. Okay, yeah. Right? Um, are they more likely to give you the architectural plans for the building or the organizational chart for the That's exactly right. For, for the company? Yes. You know, what's going to be more important to you? Um, and so you might go through this whole orientation process and understanding the organizational chart. They don't care about the, mm-hmm. you know, who built this office building and, you know, what are sure. the architectural plans? Uh, but then you get to the end of that orientation of how the whole company's structured and laid out and where your place is going to be. And uh, and then you take your seat at your desk. Yes. And now you begin working. Yes. Okay. Now we're ready to talk about day seven. Yeah. Because day seven is not just a matter of God ceasing what he's doing. That's, that's the basic thrust of that verb, uh, Shabbat. He's mm-hmm. stopping what he's doing. But then we read Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. And we find out that not only is he stopping, he's also entering this rest. Well, what is that, Um, this rest? And we find out in Psalm 132, verse 14, that God's rest is in a temple Mm. and that God's rest is on a throne. And therefore, we find out that his rest is not disengagement. It's engagement. Mm. His rest is not uh, relaxing. It's ruling. Mm. Um, And so his rest is resolving unrest. Uh, And so we learn some of those things. Then we find out then that day seven is where the whole account has been going all along. Mm. Yes. Um, That all of the rest is prelude Mm -hmm. um, of ordering it for people, putting people in place, right? There's your employee coming in, right? Mm -hmm. Learning how the, the company is organized. And then finding out that they have a job to work alongside their employer to bring order to the company and what they're doing. Mm. And so they're supposed to subdue and rule, you know, in in their own area of of expertise. And then the idea that resting. uh, So God rests means that he has assumed his seat on the throne to rule. So all of the major theology of the passage is 
is built onto day seven. Yeah. And we try to make it a science story in the six days. And we even talk about the six days of creation, uh, which is, ouch. <laughs> you know, it's just not, not right because we're missing the most important part that God orders it in order to sit on his throne and rule mm -hmm. it. Uh, and, and that makes sense out of create because it it appears, you know, upon trying to be fair to the text, as God comes, and, and, and I'm, I'm deficient for words, but as he sort of comes upon what's there, he, this this earth is there that is formless and void. It, it's mm -hmm. like it's like okay, here's here's God. He's now going to put this thing together mm -hmm. in the beginning, not maybe in the beginning of in the beginning of in the beginning, but in the beginning where God orders the world, the world's there, mm -hmm. it, which is not saying that he didn't make it there, but that's not, doesn't seem to be, that's not what the text is saying. The text seems to be saying that the world is there, but it is not really put together. It's, it's functionless, it's orderless. Right. And so taking that world and ordering it to day seven, where now everything works and is good, th th that seems to be a, a very natural reading of the text without having to do a whole lot of gymnastics. Exactly, and, and going back to the house home yep. uh, contrast, you know, think about when you're moving into a new home, a new house, mm. a new apartment, right? It, it's already there, but it's, it's empty, it needs painting, uh, all your stuff is in boxes in a pile in the corner, and and therefore it is a house, but mm. it's not a home, and it needs to be ordered in order to be functional. That's right. Uh, you have purposes for your house, and you have roles for each of the yep. rooms, and so you engage in that process of unpacking the boxes, putting things where they belong, getting them up and running, plugging in all your electronic equipment and, mm -hmm. and having it work, and that's a creation process. Um, but it's based on the idea of something that kind of in shell form and in mm -hmm. material form. I mean, the stuff in the boxes is real material stuff. Sure. But it's in boxes, yeah. you know. And so now you're getting it all organized. So, yeah. So what do you say to someone who says, you know, I totally disagree. Um, you know, you're, you're making the Bible say something that it's not. Because um, I'm sure about this point, there's somebody probably will have watched this far mm. who's just probably just irate and mad yeah. and feel like you've taken everything Sorry. out from it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what, what would you say to someone if you're reaching across the aisle to them to say, "Hey, you know, consider at least what I'm what I'm saying." Mm. How, how can we get somebody who's entrenched and you know, it's got to be this way mm. to maybe to even be potentially open to, yeah. you know? Uh, I would say things like. Um, first of all, my job is not to persuade you to think like I do. My job is to put information on the table that mm. you may not have access to. Correct. And so things to consider. Secondly, I would urge them to think through how they think about biblical authority. Uh, people talk about reading the text literally. I've got no trouble with reading the text literally. But I understand literal reading, to read it the way the author intended it to be read. That's exactly right. Um, and that means if the author intended a metaphor, God is a rock, I'm going to read it as a metaphor, not ask, is it sedimentary or, <laughs> you know. Um, if, and if it's a parable, I want to read it as a parable. If it's history, I want to read it as history. 
literal reading means reading it the way the author intended. Mm -hmm. And that's how authority has to work, to read it the way they intended. So that means with each passage, we have to ask the question, what does the author intend? And that's our obligation to literal reading, to being accountable to the author. So I would ask them again to consider, how does, how does that work in your way of thinking? Um, what do you say to someone who would say to you, you're just trying to make scripture fit science? And I would say that's really the last thing in my priority list. Um, whatever the mainstream science is, and whether it's, it's maybe right or half right or all wrong, I still have a very important question. Uh, is what the Bible says compatible what, with that mainstream science? Um, in asking that question, I'm not endorsing or affirming mm. the mainstream science. I'm just saying this is the world we live in, and we have to know whether these things can be matched up or not. So when I say that I think that when we think about Genesis 1 as a creation account about ordering the cosmos, and that therefore the seven days is not part of a house story, how long it took the house to be built, but part of a home story, that the seven days therefore are not really material in nature, that that would not preclude then a long process that evolutionary science insists on. When I say that, I'm only saying that the Bible would be compatible with such a system. Um, and if that system turns out to be the best system and the right system, that's great. If it turns out that tomorrow the whole expectation of the scientific models changes, fine. Then I'll ask the question again, is the Bible compatible with whatever this new system is? So I really have no, no horse in the game, horse in the race, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, for, for the science. Um, I have friends that do, and I'm, that's interesting for me mm -hmm. in that conversation. But in the end, that's not what I'm out here doing. I'm talking about how can we read the Bible well. People who um, will probably pick up on the fact that you, made, you just made the statement that uh, the Bible is not incompatible with the evolutionary understanding of science. I'm sure somebody heard that and went, oh my gosh, and you know, they're anti-evolution and all of that stuff. And, 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 and understandably, there is, I, I get that sort of pushback there because many people think that evolution is used to disprove the Bible, to disprove all of that stuff. One of those things, just like, you know, I, a lot of my education was in the classics and, you know, I show how the reading of Plato and Aristophanes and all these other things find some of their workings into some of the things in the text of the New Testament. And people go, oh, well, then basically the Bible's just ripping off, you know, Greek wisdom or philosophy. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It's a referential point that's being used because that's just what people talked about. Um, Conversation. You, you're, you, yeah. the, the, the point is, is you're not trying to um, in any way, shape or form, take science and denigrate scripture or whatever. I mean, you, we're saying the text is authoritative, but... We're just saying that whatever science is currently saying in this particular world, it doesn't make it completely incompatible with a reading of Genesis that sees it as a house rather than a home. But that reading is not trying to presuppose any type of right. scientific stuff. I mean, there are certainly people who promote evolutionary theory who really are trying to tear down the Bible or try to mm -hmm. disprove that there's a God or at least say you don't need God. Sure. That's certainly not my position. Yeah. Um, I have many friends in the sciences who are 
fine Christian people and who would say that uh, evolution is just our way of describing God's creation and that God has created all the way through it. You know, you've been involved and it's a process that we would say that's evolution. Well, obviously that's a different kind of claim than a scientist who would say that you know, evolution is contrary to the Bible just because a scientist who believes evolution sure. thinks that they're ruling God out of the process. You have people that would say um, evolution sort of presupposes death. And mm -hmm. it's, so therefore, since the, the argument would be we don't, they don't see death before the fall, that, that evolution would somehow hit up against Scripture, and I'm going with Scripture. Do you have any thoughts sure. on that? Um, people, of course, get that from Paul. Uh, because they read that, you know, Paul says that uh, without sin, there was no death. Um, there were, no, he says we are subject to death because of sin. That's mm -hmm. why he puts it. We're subject to death because of sin. Because, you know, Paul knows Genesis pretty well. I, I, I'll give that to him, you know. And he knows that in the garden, there's a tree of life. A tree of life is no good to people who are immortal. You know, what... What sense would that make? Uh, and so Paul, knowing that there's a tree of life, uh, he's not trying to say that people were immortal before the fall. What he's saying is we are subject to death because of sin, because when there was sin, we lost access to the tree of life. And it was the tree of life that could provide life for us, not some inherent immortality. And therefore, Paul's not claiming that there was no death before the fall. And in fact, when you look through church history, there are many voices that are pretty clear that mortality was part of humanity, even in the garden before the fall. Hmm. So I, I think that's a misreading of Paul. And again, that comes back around and says, well, so that's not an argument against evolution. What do you say to... Uh a beginning Christian that, you know, came to faith in Jesus and now they're struggling with, we're in a church that says the earth is X amount of years old and they're coming out of a background of science and they're convinced that the earth is not young. What would you just say, say to somebody like that that's struggling in that world right now? What would you speak into their life? Well, they're in a tough spot, whether it's their church that has that belief or their parents, mm -hmm. uh, their friends that have that belief. Uh, that obviously puts them in a position where they feel like an outsider. They're mm -hmm. uncomfortable. Uh, and some of those things you can fix by just saying, well, I'll find another church, but you can't find another family. Mm -hmm. um, Correct. And uh, so that's not always so easily resolved. And there may be lots of reasons you don't want to find another church. So those are the kinds of issues somebody has to work through, but there, there's no easy fix to mm. that. Um, and I know people in those kinds of positions, and uh, it's just a matter of trying to sort out um, that, you know, can, can you have certain beliefs that your pastor or your parents mm -hmm. or your friends do not share? And how do you navigate that? It's not an easy situation. Sure. Where would you put in your own theological world, where would you rank the Genesis account in the order of salvific issues? Okay, so like, you know, <laughs> 10 being, I believe that Jesus 
rose from the dead. You know, Paul says if he didn't rise from the dead in First Corinthians 15, we ought to just all go home. So that that would be the ten. That, that helps to be. At the yeah, top that's of the list. ten. Yeah. Where, where 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 would the salvificness of Genesis one, which in my and, and it's my opinion, and and I could definitely be wrong, I have sensed in many Christians I've known throughout my life that it's a ten right with Jesus rising from the dead. Where would you put, as someone who's given their life to the study of these things, where would you put that understanding of whether it's an origins account of material origins or functional orderly account? Where's that at to you in terms of like a, a salvific issue? Well, in, in prelude to that, I think, I think I'm correct at this, that the reason why people would rank it high is not because of the content of Genesis 1. They would rank it high because they would say, if you don't believe in a young earth, seven day, literal 24 hour days, if you don't believe that, then you are not taking the Bible seriously. And if you're not taking the Bible seriously, what's going to go next? And soon you're going to be saying that Jesus didn't rise from the dead and therefore it's a salvific issue. Okay. Okay. See that kind yep, of yep, logic. So yep. it's not based on the content of Genesis 1. Most people don't really see a salvific issue there. They see the salvific issue as coming into play based on whether you are ready to take the Bible seriously. And they believe that a young earth is taking the Bible seriously. And by the way, I respect them for standing up for what they believe is necessary to take the Bible seriously. Uh, I just have information that I think says there are other ways to think and still take the Bible seriously. So I, on terms of content, I don't think that Genesis 1 has a lot to tell us about salvific issues. I'm not particularly convinced that we ought to be prioritizing parts of the Bible for their salvific interests. There's lots of other things going on in the Bible yeah. that are extremely important. That's part of God's message sure. that we ought to be paying attention to, even if they have nothing to do with salvific sure. issues. Um, so there's kind of a hodgepodge answer okay. uh, covering from different directions. What do you say to the person who listens to this and says, I just, I don't think you take the Bible seriously. I mean, it's, 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 if you took it seriously, this is the way you would see Genesis. What would you say reaching across the aisle to them? I would just say, I'm sorry that you perceive it that way. Um, if you read the things I write, you would see that biblical authority is at the core of everything. And my commitment to the Bible and to Christ is at the core of everything. And I'm sorry that that's not coming through to you. Um, and please feel free to continue believing the way that you believe. If you believe that's what the Bible calls you to do, I, that's not something I can argue with. Sure. Do you, do you believe this is true? Do you believe a lot of times um, we elevate our interpretation of a particular part of the Bible to inspiration? I think that's very easy to do. It's yeah. easy to do for all of us. Um, I mean, we, we have the words to say the Bible is inspired, our interpretation is not. Yet we feel like our interpretations are supported by the Bible, and so it's easy to kind of cross that, that line. Uh, what I say to my students all the time is that the strongest interpretation is the one that has the strongest evidence. Hmm. Now, good. different people weigh evidence differently. Correct. And they prioritize one kind of evidence above another. I get all that. Um, but still, the idea that it's it's not who's the most spiritual person that gets priority for having the best interpretation. It's not the person with the most status in the Christian world 
mm. that has priority for having the best interpretation. It's not the person who is the most pious and therefore can claim the spirit told me this mm. that gets prioritization. Priority goes to the evidence that we use. And maybe that to some people sounds too scientific, but the fact is our, our interpretations are not inspired. And therefore, what are we depending on? We're depending on an appeal to authority. What authority? The authority of the Bible. How are we appealing to that authority? By the evidence that it gives us. And that's not just saying the proof text that I can use to support what I believe. It, evidence involves the literary, the linguistic, the cultural, the historical, the theological. It's a complicated process. Mm. And so I would say let's keep being willing to weigh the evidence. Sure. And, and, and I think it's important for anybody who's listening to this to, to understand that you didn't come to any of your conclusions flippantly or to appeal to something else. You came to your conclusions by just spending time in the text over and over again. You know, and that's, to, to me, um, that, that's, that's a tough place when you're a pastor, especially of a large church, for whatever reason. People think if you have a large church that you must be doing something to tickle ears. It must be doing something mm-hmm. to, to because there's just no way anybody who does church that has a large church could be doing Jesus's work because <laughs> Jesus ran everybody away. You know, um, one of those things. And it's it's funny because that's some of the things I've been criticized. You know, well, there's no way that Chip could really, you know, believe the Bible. There's no way he could really believe this. There's no way. And it's like, you know, okay, m- maybe I don't see it the way you see it, but like I've spent almost the majority of my adult life reading scripture, going to school, um, working in the text, you know, um, not to the level that you can in the Old Testament, but, you know, in, in the New Testament, definitely, you know, spending time in Greek. And I tend to like the Septuagint because my Greek is far better than my Hebrew. But uh, but but that being said, um, you know, you, you dedicate your life to it. And it sometimes hurts when somebody accuses you of, you know, not, you know, caring about the Bible or throwing the word heretic out, um, you know, I'm sure you can can relate yeah. to some of that. And my challenge to them is check out my evidence. In my books, I try to give the evidence for the conclusions I've come to. Yeah. And don't just disagree with the conclusions, check out the evidence. And if you find a weakness in it, fine, you're doing your job. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to build what evidence I've sure. got to to draw the conclusions that I have. But obviously different people can come to different sure. conclusions. And I'll recognize that to give you the benefit of the doubt. And I'd like you to recognize that to give me the benefit right. of the doubt, uh, to see that that's what, what I'm trying to do. So that's, that's the challenge, check out the evidence. Are you willing to check out the evidence? Or is your authority just the tradition that this is the way sure. it's always been? Uh, have you explored that tradition? Is it the way that it's always sure, been? Sure. What would you say to someone who is listening and wants to do some further studies? What would you What would you um, tell them to think about, or maybe some things to to look at? You know, just just to maybe mm-hmm. give them an expansive, maybe a little bit more like knowledge base. Are there some things that you could point them towards? Well, I mean, lots of my works are, sure. are trying to do these kinds of things. So I've got the whole Lost World series, yep. which tries to do this: Lost World of Genesis One, Lost World of Adam and Eve. Uh, and uh, several others in that series. Um, I've uh, participated in a cultural background study Bible, uh, which which is really good. Has it's lots great. Of, yes, has lots of this kind of information in it. 
So there are resources. You know, 20 years ago, if you had said, okay, how can I get to know the ancient world better? I'd say, well, here are the best PhD programs, and you'll have to learn German, by the way. And, you know, and, but now that, that's not the case today. Um, that, that material is accessible to people. And so, you know, that's, but, but it's, it's work, it's effort. Yeah, and of course it is. people have to be willing to do it. I mean, they take a vacation in Scotland and they don't just kind of buy a ticket that morning and fly over and then land and say, oh, I'm in Scotland. You know, they plan for weeks <laughs> and, sure. and figure out what they're going to do and what's worth seeing and right. how they, they do all of that. We do it with financial planning. We do it when we want a plumber. You know, we do research all the <laughs> time. Right. Um, why don't we want to do it with the Bible? That's right. I just did. It. I just did it yesterday. We're we're um, re re the, we're going to go to Israel again. We missed for two years, and uh, um, we we stay in Tiberius. We stay at the Scots Hotel, um, which is one we love to stay at. Well, it's booked. So what did I do? I went on um, and went to TripAdvisor and said, "What are the best luxury hotels in Tiberius?" And a list came up, and I, and and I told Warren, who I go with, I said, "Hey." Here's a couple of others that we could stay at. Mm -hmm. So what did I do? I did some research. Sure. I, you know, I, I mean, you know, you, it's it, everything is that way. Um, it's funny though how when it comes to scripture, so often once we already know what scripture says, we are unwilling mm -hmm. to even begin to think that there could be another way to see it. Mm -hmm. And for I don't know about I can't say this for you, but I can say this for me. I I just can't even begin to catalog how many times I have changed my mind on all kinds of different issues. Um, as I've just read and reread and studied and come to other conclusions and read other people that shined a light in a way that I had never seen. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I, and I, I guess if, if anybody's listening, I, I, I really, that's my passion is to get people to yeah. want to, to, to engage more. Well, we should always be open to new information. I mean, why would we not do this? To me, if, if I'm not reading the Bible with a willingness to have my mind changed, I've got a bad attitude, <laughs> you know. I I want to read it with a willingness to to learn new things, to have new insights, and sure. it's not just reading the Bible, but reading people who have knowledge about the Bible. Uh, some people occasionally get exercised um, that so much scholarly input is necessary, and say, "I'm no scholar. I can't do this." Mm -hmm. You're telling me I can't read my Bible, and no, I'm not telling you you can't read your Bible. But what I what I am suggesting possibly is that maybe, just maybe. We all need each other. Yeah. You know, we all have spiritual gifts. Right. And if my gift involves scholarship, well, fine. You're welcome. Um, if yours involves whatever you do, sure. I'm I'm grateful for it. Sure. And I benefit from it. And I don't say, no, I'm going to do it all myself. And I don't need anybody else in the body of sure. Christ. I can do everything. Right. Of course not. And so why should we think that with our with our Bibles? Um, yeah. You know, I... I I have studied long and hard to try to provide people with information that might be helpful to mm -hmm. them. I, I hope that they take advantage of that. They don't have to redo my education and my sure. you know, 40 years of teaching and research. They can get something from me and they might not agree with me. That's fine. But don't hold it against me Sure. <laughs> that, yeah. that I am trying to provide this information. Well, um, thank you for taking some time to talk uh, to me, and uh, um, I do hope if you're watching, uh, this is beneficial to you, and uh, maybe you've gotten something from it that maybe gives you a little bit different, some different avenues maybe to think through when it comes to Genesis. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please make sure that you follow us and give us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts.